Welcome to the Biner Family Speaker Series, a podcast dedicated to high-level research on contemporary anti-Semitism by fostering productive and collegial discussion of the most pertinent issues before us. Hosted by the Indiana University Institute for the Study of Contemporary Anti-Semitism. For more information about this speaker series, ISCA News, or videos of past webinars, please visit our website at isca.indiana.edu. And now to present our speaker, Dr. Alvin H. Rosenfeld. Thank you, Ken, for joining us. Welcome to everyone. Uh, We look forward to what I know will be an interesting and vigorous discussion of some major issues before us. I first came to know uh, Ken Marcus a number of years ago at important meetings we had on anti-Semitism at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, D.C. I was stimulated by everything he had to say then and have followed his career eagerly ever since, uh, most particularly uh, with regard to a book he wrote called The Definition of Anti-Semitism, which Oxford brought out some years ago. That book continues to be cited in various important debates today about what anti-Semitism is, how it's defined, who defines it. So in that one instance alone, Ken Marcus established himself as an important player in the study of uh, anti-Jewish hatred of various kind. Prior to that book, he published a book on Jewish identity and civil rights in America that one with Cambridge University Press. Right now, though, he spends the major part of his time as the founder and chairman of the Louis Brandeis Center for Human Rights Under Law, uh, a very uh, vital and important agency dealing to a large degree with campus anti-Semitism but as he will probably refer to in his presentation, what begins on campuses doesn't stay on campuses, but spills over into the larger world, including the corporate world today. So we're in tough times. We need good, clear, well-educated, balanced minds to help us sort through all of that. And as you're about to hear, Ken Marcus couldn't be uh, defined more accurately in the ways that I just did. He's a major player in the work we all do. And it's my pleasure now, Ken, to hand over to you. Thank you, Alvin. And thank you, uh, Gunter. It's a pleasure to be with you. I think Alvin might have been too modest in referring to that extraordinary two-week international conference Uh, at the Holocaust Museum, which Alvin co-chaired with uh, the British philosopher Bernard Harrison. I would say that that event, uh, as well as Alvin's uh, subsequent event and and, uh, Gunther's academic research have been extraordinary influences uh, for my own work. Uh, So I am particularly pleased to be with you and your audience uh, today. Uh, What I hope to provide this afternoon is something of an amuse bouche on the topic of iatrogenic uh, anti-Semitism, not uh, a full appetizer, much less a complete entree into the topic, uh, but rather a first exploration into this topic of iatrogenesis, uh, 
a topic well known in the medical field, but not really explored in law or human rights, uh, referring to harms caused by healers. That is to say, uh, situations in which those who are intended to heal a particular uh, medical or other uh, social uh, ill are in fact uh, perpetrating um, or exacerbating uh, the sorts of ills that they were supposed to uh, prevent. Uh, but I'd like to begin, uh, since it's a topical, with a particular example that might be uh, on the minds of some of the audience today, and that is the situation at my own alma mater, uh, Berkeley Law, that is to say the law school at the University of California at Berkeley, which I'm proud to have uh, graduated from and which I consider to be uh, one of the, the great uh, law schools and universities uh, in the world, but which has had a situation which has been quite uh, disturbing uh, in recent weeks and months. Um, in August, nine student organizations at Berkeley Law amended their constitutions and or bylaws to bar their organizations from inviting, quote, speakers that have expressed and continue to hold views in support of Zionism, the apartheid state of Israel, and the occupation of Palestine, close quote. This was neither a mere pledge nor an expression of opinion, but a binding provision restricting a category of persons from speaking at their fora. Shortly afterwards, the dean of that law school, Dean Erwin Chemerinsky, who is one of the leading constitutional law scholars in the United States and a major figure in American legal academia, it said that uh, under this uh, set of bylaws, he personally would be prevented from speaking to these groups, as would, in his estimation, 90% of the Jewish law students at the University of California at Berkeley. Subsequently, roughly two dozen faculty members of that law school, including Dean Chemerinsky and one of his predecessors, indicated that several of them would also be, as they put it, impermissibly prevented from speaking at the, uh, at the law school. Uh, this is Berkeley Law, which I think is significant not only because it's a major law school, but also because it is a law school which takes justified pride in its emphasis on human rights. As an alumnus, I was pleased to receive very recently the latest edition of our alumni review from Berkeley Law, which is entitled Rights, and which explains how we're fighting for our rights and working to advance justice, freedom, and equality at home and around the world. The emphasis is not on corporate law, tax law, trust law, estate law, but on the protection of rights. A noble and accurate emphasis at Berkeley Law. And on the back, with a, uh, an image of uh, Dean Chemerinsky, um, a uh, discussion of what would a more just world look like, introducing, quote unquote, more just, a podcast about how law schools can and must play a role in solving society's most difficult problems, including in particular, it indicates, human rights issues. So we're here we have not just higher education, but specifically a major law school with a focus on human rights with at least nine organizations, excluding those who have views in support of Israel from participating as speakers. 
Now, aside from Dean Chemerinsky's reference to himself and 90% of the law students, we see from Pew and others various studies showing that perhaps 80% or other figures of, of, of American Jews uh, support uh, Israel and a very high percentage consider that support to be integral to their identity, which is to say, not only uh, do these groups exclude Dean Chemerinsky and 90% of the Jewish law students at Berkeley, but they have adopted constitutional and bylaw provisions that would exclude, it appears, a large percentage of Jews uh, in America uh, from uh, this basic participation. The groups involved, and I say this not to name and shame them, but to give you a sense, these are not insignificant uh, organizations representing only a small percentage of the school, nor are they right-wing extremist uh, organizations uh, that one might suspect of harboring traditional forms of anti-Semitism. They include women of Berkeley Law, the Asian Pacific American Law Students Association, the Law Students of African Descent, the Queer Caucus, and the Middle Eastern and North African Law Students Association, among others. Those who hold views in support of the State of Israel are barred from speaking on any topic from those groups. That is to say, a feminist legal scholar may not address anti-abortion laws uh, to the women's law group, for example, if she holds views in support of Israel. An LGBTQ legal scholar may not address the Bostock uh, Supreme Court case before the Queer Law Caucus under its own rules, um, unless the scholar's views are sufficiently hostile to the Jewish state. No other group besides Zionists are excluded in this manner, not rapists, not racists, not homophobes, not felons, nor Nazis, nor KKK. What do we make of this? There are lots of different ways uh, of, of, of talking, talking about it. Uh, some would emphasize uh, that Berkeley is thought of as a somewhat left-wing institution and perhaps some of these uh, groups are on the left. And we often talk about left and right-wing anti-Semitism. And there is a literature on left and right-wing anti-Semitism that I think is useful, but not fully explanatory uh, because these are not just left-wing organizations. They're organizations of particular characteristic. People talk about anti-Semitism within identity groups or perhaps woke anti-Semitism, anti-Semitism within a community of uh, people who are not just on the left, but who are on a side of the left who are dealing with a particular politics of identity. And that is worth talking about, and there are articles and books about this as well. But it seems to me uh, that in a significant way, these are groups that have and want it to be known that they have a particular human rights concern. And this is, this is something that I, I think needs, uh, that I, I think needs exploration. Um, and I'll, I'll remind you that this is the constitution and bylaws we're talking about. This is not just a pledge that they made. This is not just a statement that they made. This is not an opinion paper, a white paper, an op-ed. This is a document that for the most part indicates the official name of the organization, the number of officers and directors that they will have, the uh, time in which they will hold their uh, elections, in one case, uh, they mention a particular dinner they put on, but they don't otherwise express much in the way of views other than no Zionists. However, in these new provisions that are based on language provided by uh, the Berkeley Law uh, Students for Justice in Palestine, they couch the exclusion of Zionists in language that is explicitly and specifically human rights 
related. That is to say that relates to the core value um, that Berkeley Law trumpets in various of its uh, publications. I'll read just a little bit. And this is, this is specifically from the paragraph of the constitutions and bylaws in which Zionists are now excluded. I'm going to read specifically from a language adopted by the Women of Color Collective, which is a group, but, but the language is similar or identical for the other groups as, as well. WOCC, which is that organization's abbreviation, rejects the logics and systems of white supremacy, cis-heteropatriarchy, settler colonialism, imperialism, capitalism, classism, ableism, and other forms of oppression. I'll stop for a moment. So I think it's important to see that this is, even though this is a paragraph that is added in order to exclude Zionists, that they are coaching it within a broad and comprehensive view of a wide range of human rights related uh, social pathologies for which Zionism is thought to be at the center. They continue. WOCC affirms and supports movements for Palestinian liberation, indigenous sovereignty, black liberation, LGBTQIA plus liberation, racial justice, gender equity, economic justice, disability justice, environmental justice, and other movements for justice and liberation. My point isn't for you to remember all of those, but simply to indicate that what we have here is the exclusion of Zionism being the centerpiece in a comprehensive worldview. Much like for both the left and the right, anti-Semitism has historically been not just one social ill among others, but rather the Jew, individually or collectively, has been understood to be at the center of whatever ills exist within society. They go on. WOC engages in the boycott divestment sanctions movement and is wholly dedicated I'm sorry, and is dedicated to wholly boycotting, sanctioning, and divesting funds from institutions, organizations, companies, and any entity that participated in or is directly, indirectly complicit in the occupation of Palestinian territories and or supports the actions of the apartheid state of Israel. Okay, I'll stop, stop again. So they start by discussing a comprehensive set of human rights problems around the world. They situate their opposition to Zionism within all of this. But then the action that they suggest in order to address to all of those ills is to boycott Israel. Boycotting Israel, we are to infer, is the way to address all of the ills that they described, white supremacy, cis-heteropatriarchy, settler colonialism, imperialism, capitalism, so on and so forth. This move, it seems to me, would be incomprehensible to anyone who is unaware of the history of anti-Semitism. It is only in the context of that that we understand that Jew hatred has been across time and in various societies, not just a disdain for Jewish people, not just one animosity among others, but rather an organizing principle under which all that is bad about the world can be understood as having one central source and one ultimate solution. And the ultimate solution always deals with the exclusion of Jews. And then they continue, it is then that they say, furthermore, WOCC 
will not invite speakers that have expressed and continue to hold views in support of or host, sponsor, promote events in support of Zionism, the apartheid state of Israel, and the occupation of Palestine. So what I would like to make clear is both that we have here a fairly concise example of how anti-Semitism operates to hold together diverse uh, concerns or principles into one organized ideology, but also the irony that of all ways in which it could be done, it's done in the language of human rights. Now, some have argued that anti-Semites use a human rights discourse because human rights discourses have particular currency and force uh, within the 21st century. And I think that that's true. And I think that's an important part of it. And it, and it can't be denied at a law school where their official publications trumpet their support for human rights. It is, in some respects, simply good marketing uh, to present the opposition to Zionism as being the central organizing force uh, um, in addressing human rights. But I don't think that would work um, unless these groups, some of which are sincerely interested in uh, advancing human rights, actually believed that excluding Zionists is a human rights measure. That is to say, um, the explanation that this is simply cynical uh, marketing might be accurate for some one or two people here or there. But I don't think it can explain the support of these major groups within a modern law school. To some extent, one has to reckon with the darker possibility that they sincerely mean it. That is to say that these students, these future leaders, these law students who will one day be in many cases probably our prosecutors and our judges, our legislators and our government officials, have been convinced that to support human rights in America means first and foremost, centrally, it means getting rid of Zionists. That has to be the first step. There's no other provision that says we must also exclude these other groups that were mentioned. Nothing to say we should exclude white supremacists or, or something of that sort. Now, as a practical matter, will these groups invite white supremacists? No, they, they will not, I cannot imagine. But it is significant that in this formal instrument, the exclusion of Zionists is the center of a broad human rights statement and mm, administrative action. Why? What do we make of this? It seems to me that if we're to understand this human rights action, this exclusionary, discriminatory, anti-Jewish action, which has the effect essentially of excluding Jews, basically Jews other than perhaps this small percentage who will uh, make statements contrary to the interests of the Jewish community, it is excluding Jews, but that has become the center of human rights. How could that be? How could it be that human rights, which is intended among other things to eliminate invidious discrimination, human rights, which had its flourishing in the wake of the Holocaust, uh, in order to make sure that we do not have again the horrors of the anti-Jewish genocide, that it is in this language of human rights that these groups are saying, in effect, no Jews as speakers to our, to our groups. They aren't saying no Jewish members or officers, they couldn't do that under the, the policies of Berkeley law, but they are saying no Jews 
in effect? Well, it is not as anomalous as we might like to think. In fact, this sort of anti-Semitic anti-Zionism happens so frequently in the human rights world that we may even have stopped to notice it. But there certainly is a literature on anti-Semitism within the United Nations and where we find it in the United Nations. And the United Nations, of course, established in no small part in the wake of the Second World War in order to make sure that there isn't a recurrence of the Holocaust. And not just in the United Nations, which has this uh, central story of its origin, but in the, the human rights uh, council or commission uh, within, within the UN, which should be the last place to expect it. And then in other human rights organizations internationally, those are the places where one finds this exclusionary anti-Zionism and on college campuses. And think about the BDS movement, the Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions movement internationally. Some have argued that it was a cynical uh, that 20 years ago, uh, the uh, originators of the BDS movement repackaged the longstanding anti-Jewish boycotts from the Arab League and before that, the Nazi world, they re repackaged it in human rights language. But again, it seems to me that that doesn't work in a large scale with the international human rights community if it's just cynical marketing. Maybe it was cynical marketing when it was developed in the Tehran conference uh, 20 years ago. But again, it wouldn't work unless a significant part of the international human rights establishment actually believed that this is what we must do to advance human rights. And domestically, we find it uh, elsewhere. Um, it is true that we find anti-Semitism on the right, we find it in the streets, we find it in the internet, we find it in lots of terrible places, we see it in prisons and jails, but what is extraordinary is that we are now starting to see it, as Alvin Rosenfeld suggested a few minutes ago, seeping from the campus to the corporation, and where? Are we seeing it in the CFO's office? Well, I'm not saying that there isn't any, but that's not where we're hearing about it. Are we seeing it especially in the COO's office, the chief operating office? Well, I'm sure there are some in the COO's, but that's not. The big issue is DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, where, of course, uh, a major concern has been the absence of discussion of anti-Semitism, even in corporations which have had some incidents involving anti-Jewish discrimination, and even in those programs that have been formed um, after uh, last year's uh, enormous spike of anti-Semitism. So it's partly the absence uh, of uh, discussion of anti-Semitism when other forms of discrimination are mentioned, but it's partly um, the uh, anti-Jewish stereotypes and defamation that are used in DEI programs where Jews either have their identity uh, erased um, they're told that they should be merely uh, considered uh, white, regardless of uh, their actual uh, heritage, and in many cases told to own their privilege, uh, not just as whites, but often uh, as hyper-whites, that is to say people who as Jews are considered to be especially uh, successful, uh, privileged, and powerful, that is to say um, people who, for whom certain kinds of stereotypes are applied, uh, stereotypes um, that are not going to uh, gain them any sort of appreciation with these groups. So it is in the DEI. Again and again, I'm trying to suggest, it is within these institutions that are intended to reduce discrimination, stereotype, exclusion. It is within these institutions that the problem is arising. The very specific 
individuals, institutions, and instrumentalities designed to reduce discrimination and hate are in fact expanding it. And that's what we're saying in Berkeley Law. This is, I think, a conundrum that hasn't been looked at in the law, but it is not unknown to scholarship in other areas. And here is where we get to iatrogenesis. The term iatrogenesis means brought forth by a healer and is derived from the, the Greek uh, for iatros and genesis, healer and origin. Technically, it could mean good or bad things uh, brought about by a healer, but in the medical fields, it generally refers to uh, illness or disease that is brought forth as a result of medical uh, intervention. Um, one could speak of perhaps a jurisgenesis to refer to um, social illnesses uh, brought about by lawyers, but it seems to me that what we're talking about here is not just lawyers, but the human rights community more generally. Uh, and so by a kind of a metaphor, I think it's appropriate to keep the term iatrogenesis, which is to say that human rights officials, including human rights uh, lawyers and teachers of human rights are in a sense, an important sense, intended to be healers. And yet what they are bringing about is in some cases, the harm that they are designed or intended to heal. Since at least the time of Hippocrates, people have recognized that healers can cure disease, but they can also cause potential damage. And the medical fields have been up on that, others have not. Medical science uses the term iatrogenesis to refer to, among other things, infections that are spread through devices and facilities intended to cure them. The term nosocomial is sometimes used specifically for hospitals where you might get illnesses either through uh, surgical devices or uh, airborne or surface particles, um, uh, the hospital-borne uh, illness nosocomial, but more generally the uh, physician or medically uh, disseminated uh, illness. Uh, iatro, uh, iatrogenesis. Um, in the medical field, uh, this has gotten considerable uh, attention because it is such a big problem nationally and worldwide. Uh, nosocomial bacterial infections uh, have emerged as an immense um, healthcare concern uh, internationally. Iatrogenesis has been described by uh, some researchers as the fifth leading cause of death in the world, uh, iatrogenesis in the medical sense. Um, just uh, adverse drug reactions alone um, have caused five, eight uh, percent of deaths in some uh, countries. In some countries, um, adverse drug reactions in, in some years have been a leading cause of death. And that's just the adverse drug uh, reactions as opposed to uh, the various other ways in which one might uh, become ill as a result of medical uh, in interventions. Hospitals have frequently become super spreaders of pneumonia, MRSA, and other medical uh, problems. For this reason, um, medical uh, uh, science have uh, given thought uh, to, uh, to the, the issue. In 1975, uh, the social critic uh, Ivan Illich uh, wrote that the medical establishment has become a major threat to health. Uh, at that time, uh, it inspired a certain amount of anger and shock, but he wrote 20 years later uh, that the comment had become trite. That is to say that there was, by then, a widespread understanding of the extent to which um, some combination of um, uh, iatrogenic uh, uh, problems threaten world's, uh, world's health. 
Um, today, analogous sentiments can still elicit shock and outrage within the legal and human rights establishments. That is to say, lawyers and human rights officials are not willing to accept and have not even begun to explore the same basic principles uh, that have been discussed certainly since uh, Hippocrates, but which have been discussed with much greater um, rigor um, since Illich's work and, and, and since the last quarter of the last uh, century. Um, of the many reactions um, at Berkeley Law to the incident that I've described, there have been debates over, is it anti-Semitic and why is it anti-Semitic? There have been debates over the First Amendment and should we focus on the, the lack of free speech for uh, Jews there or should we focus on uh, the limits on the ability of the administration supposedly to, to respond to it. But so far as I've seen, and I've looked pretty close and I've certainly been involved, my articles in the Jewish Journal and elsewhere um, have, have gotten a significant part of the attention to this, to this topic, but I've seen little to no introspection over the irony that a great law school and one with a deserved pride in his focus on human rights, which should be and is addressing human rights problems locally, nationally, and worldwide, should itself be a super spreader of the very sorts of problems that it's designed to address. That isn't even being discussed because even the language for discussing it isn't, isn't available. But we have to begin that now. We have to begin that now because lawyers and civil and human rights professionals uh, cannot be in the business of undermining the very work to which we're committed. Uh, we need to begin with the Hippocratic Oath, first thing, do no harm. And we need, I think, uh, to take lessons wherever we can get them, including from our colleagues in the medical fields who have been considering these topics uh, longer than we have. Illich discusses three levels of uh, iatrogenic medical problems, and I think they're worth thinking about. Uh, he discusses clinical iatrogenesis, injuries and illnesses uh, done to patients by ineffective, unsafe, or erroneous treatments, ranging from uh, wounds um, by infected medical instruments, physicians' errors, whether it's too much potassium in an intravenous fluid causing cardiac problems, um, it, nosocomial infections uh, caused by uh, space uh, constraints, number of uh, patients, so on and so forth. All of that is what we might call clinical. He also raised a couple of other issues that it seems to me are worth looking at as well, which is to say social and cultural deatrogenesis, the over-medicalization of society and the overemphasis on medical treatments, uh, as opposed to other approaches, uh, which can lead one to uh, develop um, an inappropriate uh, medical response to something that shouldn't even be addressed in that way. And the incentives uh, to use medical in interventions when they are neither necessary nor appropriate. And then culturally, uh, the loss of cultural resources uh, for dealing or coping with um, uh, health and, and, and sickness uh, when over-medicalization crowds out more traditional uh, approaches to the extent that any part of the initial uh, effort uh, was based on any legitimate concerns about the Middle East. One traditional approach might have been uh, to have civil discourse within the law school, uh, including speakers of diverse uh, perspectives, 
uh, giving um, legally informed approaches to the issues at, at play. That is an, an appropriate um, uh, response. And I'm not gonna say none of that exists. Uh, there are uh, lectures on various sorts of topics um, at Berkeley Law and within uh, the University of California at Berkeley uh, elsewhere. But uh, this uh, exclusion of Jews in the garb of human rights is explicitly intended to limit that very approach, which should be a way that we deal with the, uh, the issue. A few more lessons that we might uh, have. There are various risk factors that medical doctors point to in the area of iatrogenesis. There are patients who have high risk factors, and this needs to be considered, but you can't always uh, pick your, your patients. There are also organizational and so-called iatrogenic risk factors. Uh, that is to say, we can consider the cleanliness of the hospital, we can uh, consider the water systems and the building surfaces, and then we consider the care which the doctors and, and hospitals use. Um, these, I think, all have perhaps metaphysical, excuse me, metaphorical um, uh, value that I'll try to spell out in a, in, in a, in a, in a few minutes. Uh, to the extent that anti-Semitism is one of the fastest mutating and most resistant of social illnesses, it should not be surprising that it has been the fastest to spread among uh, anti-discrimination uh, agents. In terms of responding to iatrogenesis, there are basic principles. Uh, Hippocrates, of course, uh, created the basic principle of first do no harm. That should be the first and basic principle also of human rights uh, professionals. It's another way of saying avoid iatrogenic effects. Um, more generally, when people learn of uh, anti-Semitic problems within say diversity, equity, and inclusion, there are often two responses that I hear. Uh, I have been told frequently that I should not talk about it because it is delicate and it will be misunderstood. Um, another approach I hear is, well, let's get rid of it altogether. If DEI is causing these problems, then we should get rid of DEI. It's just not worth it. I can sympathize with the people who hold either view. When we have iatrogenic problems at a hospital, we don't usually say, let's just ignore it and hope that it all fades away and people just sort of it, it just, just sort of sweep it under the rug. We don't say that because we acknowledge that there is a problem that will get worse if we don't deal with it. On the other hand, we don't say, well, let's just close down the hospitals then. If they're, if they're causing a problem, we should stop funding them. We say hospitals serve a crucial function, but we should make sure that that function is conducted in a way that is successful and doesn't undermine its very purpose by spreading the harm it is intended to uh, heal. Um, standards of care. There are many different approaches that uh, medical science has developed and it seems to me that we as lawyers and human rights professionals can uh, learn from all of them, starting with medical uh, training. Um, it, at a minimum, it seems to me, uh, when a problem like this arises, an institution should ask the question, why is it that we're just sort of making it up as we go along? Is this not a problem for which there is a, a history, for which there is a, a literature, uh, for which there's a scholarship, 
why aren't we training our people better to, to deal with it? Prevention. Um, in a hospital, this means hand hygiene, among other things. And of course, that's a little simplistic. Um, but why are we not thinking in advance of what can be done not to prevent people from speaking the way they want to speak, but to ensure that our human rights efforts are not causing the opposite of what they're intended to do. Case managers, why do, why do we not think about having people with a specific function to ensure that our human rights practices don't have the opposite of the intended effect? And regular monitoring. Recently, the Brandeis Center, uh, in the wake of, of case we had at Brandeis University, brought on two Equal Employment Opportunity Commission uh, members uh, to discuss, among other things, anti-Semitism in the workplace and especially in DEI. And one thing that one of them recommended was regular monitoring of DEI programs to make sure that they aren't actually spreading anti-Jewish stereotypes. That should be shocking. That should be shocking that even a high-placed federal official is now recognizing, wait a minute, DEI isn't just the solution. It can be part of the problem. In other words, without using that word, she was suggesting that DEI offices can have iatrogenic effects and we need to monitor or audit them on a regular basis to ensure that they won't do that. And of course, this applies not just to corporate uh, DEI, but to every form of DEI, and not just to DEI in a narrow sense, but to any institution that is the intended effect of advancing civil and human rights, but which can have an undermining or contrary effect. Immediate response is responsive antibiotic therapy. That for nosocomial uh, infections uh, is, the, is the key. And here again, it seems to me uh, that the metaphor is appropriate. Treatment requires the right agent at the right dosage for the proper duration, whether that includes anti-Semitism training, uh, use of the uh, IRA working definition and proven uh, remedies to address anti-Semitism used in the right way for the amount, the right period of time where it's necessary. In other words, where we find the pathogen of anti-Semitism, we deal with it comprehensively through monitoring, training, prevention, and from thinking of it as um, a pathogen that needs to be uh, addressed. The question of social and cultural uh, iatrogenic anti-Semitism is much harder. Um, as I've said, we don't want to defund the hospitals. So when we think about the over-medicalization of society, it doesn't mean we don't want doctors. It means we want appropriate cost-benefit analysis. We want appropriate thought to both benefits and, 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 and harms of the problem. And, and, and in the same way, we don't want to get rid of the civil rights laws, the human rights laws. We don't want to denigrate those who are sincerely, whether as students or as professionals, seeking to better the lives of humanity through stronger human rights. This is important and it should be uh, encouraged. But we have to ask the question, um, are we oversaturating society with a particular kind of legalistic human rights discourse for which costs and benefits are sometimes confused? Uh, and are there times when we need to say, this is not the appropriate um, approach? And are there times when we have to say, perhaps we have within some of our habits and practices, approaches that we need to pull up and use again, for which I would say free speech and academic freedom are very high um, on, the, 
on the list. Um, in response to Berkeley Law, uh, several of us have made various recommendations for what Berkeley Law can do, and that includes dozens of national Jewish organizations, as well as at least 10 uh, Berkeley student groups, and then dozens of student organizations around the country. And often, they involve such things as making clear that uh, the University of California at Berkeley should not recognize, fund, and financially support student organizations which uh, violate the university's anti-discrimination principles by excluding uh, Jews um, or, or Zionists, or for that matter, any other uh, ethnic, racial, or religious group. And that, of course, uh, is an important way of treating the problem. It seems to me, however, that for a great institution to see a problem that they've got, the issue shouldn't just be, do we do that or not? There should be introspection about why is it that um, we who value uh, human rights so much um, are undermining it and are failing to provide our students with a way to deal with this, not just during their law school years, but after that. It seems to me that like medical schools, law schools should be thinking in a much more careful way about the harm that they're doing, about the harm that their students might do, about the harms that their students down the road might do, and need to give much more rigorous thought to how they can ensure um, standards of care uh, that will uh, prevent this and that will help to make sure that their uh, support of human rights um, does not come with significant exceptions and that their efforts to protect people everywhere in the world are not undermined locally by the very harms uh, that they are intended to heal. It's been my pleasure speaking to you and I would be happy to take any questions or comments that you might have.